Good evening. My name is Aaron Bastani. Welcome to Navarra Live. This evening, I have the immense pleasure, I think this is the very first time, of being joined by Sam Bright as our co-host. Sam, how are you? Pleasure, Aaron. Yeah, I'm great. How are you? I'm very good, mate. I've just come back from holiday uh, in in Malta. Are you, are you planning to go anywhere, uh, anywhere soon? Any summer holidays for Sam Bright? I went to Greece at the worst time of the year, the first two weeks of June. Um, although perhaps the last couple of weeks would have been worse in Greece, given the weather. But yeah, when the British summer finally kicked off, I, I made my way out of the country. I have to say, when I came back, I was... I was shocked at how bad the weather is. However, that is not representative of the global situation. We will be talking about climate change, of course, this evening. Coming up tonight, the Electoral Commission have announced they've been hacked. Another climate record has been broken. And an interesting look at the Tony Blair Institute. So stay tuned for all of that. Here's today's first story. 15 men are now housed on the Bibby Stockholm after boarding the barge yesterday. That's a lot less than the Home Office had hoped for after 20 asylum seekers refused to move, prompting the government to start issuing ultimatums. On Sky News, Justice Secretary Alex Chalk went into the details of those threats. A letter was seen by Sky News yesterday which shows that asylum seekers who didn't get on the barge yesterday must board today or face having their government support cancelled. Now, a lot of these people may well have legitimate reasons to claim asylum, are you breaking your legal responsibility to these refugees by, by threatening them with this? Well, look, those who object to going on the barge can seek legal advice and try to resist it in the normal way, and we, we will have those arguments played out in an independent court. That's absolutely right. But look, the, the point about the but you're barge... you're saying to them, not that it will go but, to a court, that, that if they don't get on it, they're out. Well, well look, the, the, point, the point about that is the British people uh, would rightly expect, of course, people coming to our uh, country would have basically safe and decent accommodation. What they don't expect is that we're spending £6 million a day on four-star hotel accommodation. So this is about fairness. Yes, of course, fairness uh, to migrants, but also fairness to the British people. And we are very clear that it is safe and it is reasonable that people should be uh, provided with acceptable accommodation, but not accommodation necessarily which goes beyond that, which costs huge amounts of money. Because £6 million a day, billions of pounds a year, that's money which then can't be spent on other priorities for the British people, whether it's the NHS or whether it's uh, schools and so on. So look, we, we are absolutely clear that people, people who arrive uh, in, in our country uh, illegally, for example, we will do what is absolutely right and the, the appropriate standards will be applied. Now, the argument that this is about costs is ridiculous. There are currently more than 50,000 asylum seekers in hotels. The 500 who will eventually be housed on the floating prison make up less than 1% of that number. And while the government has tried to find other barges, no port has so far agreed to let them dock. The latest denial came from Glasgow, which has refused to let the government moor a barge on the River Clyde. A refugee charity, Care for Calais, is offering legal support to the group of asylum seekers who have refused to move. They say that, amongst the group, there are people who are disabled, people who are torture and slavery survivors, and people who have, quote, suffered traumatic experiences at sea. That's despite the Home Office's own guidelines stating this. If an individual meets any of the following criteria, they are not suitable for NAPIA, ex-MOD sites and vessels, or room sharing. 
They may be a victim of modern slavery, they're a disabled person, they're an elderly person, they're an individual who has been subjected to torture, rape, or other serious forms of psychological, physical, or sexual violence. They have serious mobility problems or physical disability. They have serious mental health issues where there is a high risk of suicide, serious self-harm, or risk to others. The delays with moving people onto the barge has angered some Tories who'd like to treat asylum seekers even worse than we already do. Here's what happened on Radio 5 Live when Care for Calais CEO Steve Smith gave his views on the BB Stockholm to Tory MP Tom Hunt. To all intents and purposes, this is like a detention facility. Uh, Tom Hunt, MP, react to that, please. Well, I mean, it's, 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 I'm quite encouraged to hear that it's like a detention facility. I would mean, I'd, I'd actually like it to be a detention facility. <laughs> and of course, the, the illegal migration bill is, is you know, is, is what we're, is, what's looking to deliver that. Um, but ultimately, no, wait, 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 just, just expand on that a little bit. You would like it to be a, more like a detention facility. Um, yes, yeah, and, that, and that's what the illegal migration bill is looking to deliver. So essentially, um, I've got concerns about the, the, the ability for those to um, abscond who actually have illegally entered our country, disappearing into the community. So, you know, I, I think they should be detained for a, a small amount of time in the UK and then deported to a safer country, of course, which is why, you know, if you get the Miranda policy delivered, that will work in tandem with the illegal migration bill. You know, and that you know that is the plan. You know, if I if I had if I was genuine and I gen, if I was genuinely free of persecution, was fit for my life, I'd be more than happy to be in that in, in the Bibby Stockholm. And we've seen we've all seen the pictures; it's absolutely fine. Um, you know, I, I, I you know I don't see what the problem is. What we do know though is we need a deterrent. Otherwise, we're not going to solve this problem. We're going to continue to have tens of thousands of people illegally entering our country every year. And you've heard today this morning that you know these are all you know people who have been tortured and they've, they've, they've been victims of X, Y, and Z. Well, we don't know that for sure. We know that some of them are claiming that. We do not know for sure whether that's the truth. Uh, we, know for, we know that many of them are not actually genuine refugees or economic migrants, and they're actually compromising our ability and our capacity to support the most genuine of refugees. The vast majority of the British public are absolutely fed up with this. They're fed up with the views we heard this morning, uh, and they want to see a resolution to it. Tom Hunt there saying that life on an overcrowded barge, condemned by the fire brigade's union as a floating death trap, still has too much pull factor. Hunt wasn't the only MP displaying how the Tories really feel about the vulnerable. Speaking to the Express, a Tory party deputy chairman, Lee Anderson, said this, if they don't like barges, they should cross back to France. I think people have just had enough. These people come across the channel in small boats. If they don't like the conditions they're housed in here, then they should just go back to France or better not, or better not come at all in the first place. On LBC, Alex Chalk was asked what he thought of Anderson's comments. Your colleague, yeah. Lee Anderson, Tory vice chairman, has told express.co.uk if they, the asylum seekers, don't like the barges, then they should clear off, I've changed that word, clear off back to France. Yeah. Does he speak for the party? Lee Anderson expresses the righteous indignation of the British people. Yeah, he does it in salty terms, and that's uh, that's the, that's his style. But his indignation is well placed. The people are so coming you from agree, a safe they can country. Clear off back well, to yeah. France. Well, it, it, people are coming from a safe country. You know, France is a signatory to the European Convention on Human Rights, and uh, you know, the, people should claim asylum in the fir first country. It's, it's not like there shouldn't just be like a sort of open shopping list of where you want to go. So he expresses himself in his characteristically robust terms, but there is. A lot of sense, in uh, in my respectful view, uh, in what Lee said. 
Just to be clear, the 1951 Refugee Convention does not require a person to claim asylum in the first safe country they reach. That's not accurate. If it was the case, you would have millions more people in places like Jordan, Lebanon and Turkey than we already do. Sam, the Tories obviously think there's political mileage in this stuff. But it does feel like this policy of the barge, while perhaps being popular with the base they need to mobilise, get angry, might not be workable. Because what we're hearing from places such as Glasgow is that people don't want these things on their doorstep. Do you think this is a policy they can execute? Or is this, is this, is this just going to be another case of a few good headlines for six months and really goes nowhere? Yeah, I mean, I don't even think that it will create good headlines. I mean... We have to look back to what started all of this, and it was Farage propping himself up um, on the Kent coastline, actually during the COVID crisis, and um, having his camera on asylum seekers coming across. Um, and then a focus on the news um, in the tabloids and on the BBC about the sheer numbers of people um, coming across, which, you know, compared to the amount of people in this country and the amount of people climbing asylum in general is negligible, but whatever. There is a focus on numbers. And like you say, the barge isn't going to significantly deter people. I mean, Tom Hunt, when he was talking in that clip, said, oh, the barge looks fine, but also it's a deterrent. And this is exactly what they're saying with Rwanda as well, is that it's both an acceptable destination, but it's a deterrent. The whole thing is going to fall apart um, on contact with reality. It won't do what the Tories want it to do. And yeah, it might generate a couple of headlines, but ultimately it's not going to make any political um, headway and uh, neither will it policy-wise either. It's an interesting, uh, interesting prediction. I, I suspect you're right. Interestingly enough, it's not just asylum seekers in the crosshairs of the government. They're also taking out their anger on the lawyers who represent them too. Home Secretary Sola Braverman has announced a new task force to catch immigration lawyers who she brands as immoral. And this latest Home Office move follows a Daily Mail investigation in which they secretly filmed a small number of solicitors agreeing to help an undercover journalist submit a fraudulent asylum application. Braverman wants to significantly increase the number of lawyers prosecuted, and the penalties are pretty stark too. This is really extraordinary. Lawyers now face a maximum sentence of life, life, in prison uh, after the Nationality and Borders Act increased the maximum term from uh, 14 years. It was hardly, uh, it was hardly soft to start with. Life is really extraordinary. In response, the governing body for UK lawyers, the Law Society, said this. Today, the Ministry of Justice and the Home Office announced that they have launched a professional enablers task force to crack down on lawyers. Responding, Deputy Vice President of the Law Society, Richard Atkinson, said, the government regulators and law enforcement agencies already have the powers they need to deal with immigration advisors engaged in misconduct. The overwhelming majority of immigration lawyers continue to support the rule of law through their adherence to the law and professional standards set by the Solicitors Regulation Authority. So is this all just a distraction from the Home Office's failings? Good Morning Britain put that question to Justice Secretary Alex Chalk. 
By your own admission, it's a small minority. It's a big headline for a small minority. And frankly, to many people, it might just seem like a very good distraction from the fact that the backlog is going up and you are not able to deal with it properly. What, and you've what, been in power for almost 14 years. Well, of, well, of course, it, it is a small minority, but they do a disproportionate amount of harm, as I say, because it can mean that individuals who have no reason to be in this country and potentially are you know, a threat to the, to the country who shouldn't be here are here because of dishonesty. So although it's a small minority, they can have a disproportionate uh, impact. Mm. It's not just fraudulent lawyers that Alex Chalk is coming for. Here he is on the Stay programme responding to a question about care for Calais lawyers helping asylum seekers who are refusing to move to the Bibi Stockholm. Are they lefty lawyers that are doing this? Or are they yeah. just lawyers doing the job that they're paid to do, no, using the laws of the land? Let me tell you, the, the strong tradition of lawyers in this country is that you simply act for your lawyer without, with your client without fear or favour, and you don't necessarily associate yourself with that cause. But... I think it is fair to point out that in the last 10 years, there has been a growing and I think regrettable trend for lawyers to actively sort of parade their politics and to identify more with their clients. And I, I don't think that, you know, if they can avoid that, they should avoid it. I mean, it's much better, I think, for lawyers in the main to keep their politics to themselves and to simply do their job on behalf of their clients. But, but some seem to be much more willing and indeed almost enthusiastic about parading their political opposition. We, I think that's a mistake. Everybody can be political unless you're a nurse or a teacher or a doctor or a lawyer or a journalist. The only people who are allowed to be political are Conservative MPs, it seems. Sam, what do you make of Saul Abraham's war on lawyers? Yeah, I mean, it's as farcical as you make out. Um, it, it was interesting, actually, in that very first clip that you showed of Alex Chalk on Sky News, he seemed to suggest that one of the ways in which um, they might... Um, solve the disputes um, that emerge from the asylum policy is to go through the courts and for the lawyers to make their case. And then when it was pointed out that they simply want to boot asylum seekers out of the country without any due process, he uh, sort of swallowed his tongue at that point. I find it part of a trend, though, as well, which is quite interesting, which it seems that as though Conservative MPs are going after their natural constituencies. You've seen Farage going after the bankers, you see Braveman and Alex Chalk himself, a lawyer, going after the lawyers. So these are institutions where the sort of conservative establishment dominates. Um, and it might be, you know, a relatively good short-term political ploy, though I suspect probably not. But I wonder how that turns out in the long run and whether there might be a backlash from those institutions against the Conser Conservative Party itself. Um, it's certainly a long-term trend to look out for, I reckon. It's pretty extraordinary, isn't it? I mean, the funniest one for me is the National Association of Head Teachers. You know, this is the quintessential bourgeois, centre-right, highly professional, buttoned-up, Tory, professional advocacy organisation. Uh, and like you say, look, those guys were going on strike. Um, and so lawyers, head teachers, doctors, that was the base of the Conservative Party for a, a very long time. And I think you're right that um, it's going to have consequences for them. Next story. Labour have made it clear that if they win the next election, they won't be getting rid of inhumane asylum accommodation like the Bibby Stockholm barge, at least not straight away. They've said the barge is not the solution, but also that they'll be lumbered with the policies and practices that the Tories have left them with. And given there's so far only one barge, and it will only house 500 people, that strikes me as a very weak excuse. 
But it's part of a pattern emerging where the Labour Party criticise a Tory policy, but say they won't get rid of it. Think North Sea Oil and Gas and the two-child benefit cap too. As someone who isn't afraid to call out both the Tories and Labour on this is Jeremy Corbyn. He told Sky News this. Forcing human beings who have escaped war and persecution to live on unsafe and overcrowded prison ships is morally indefensible. So too is the failure to offer a more humane alternative. These are human beings who are legally and legitimately exercising their right to asylum. That is absolutely true and rarely said in the media. We should be defending, not denigrating that right. Political cowardice has consequences, and vulnerable people will pay the highest price. That's why I'm proud to stand alongside people in my constituency campaigning for an immigration system based on dignity and care. Sam, what do you think of Labour's position on all of this? I know I, I bash Starmer a lot on Twitter. People think I'm being unfair, and this was one of those instances I said on Sunday, I thought Labour's position on this was quite bad, quite weak. People said, well, look, they're only saying the obvious, which is they can't eliminate this straight away. That's true, but this is a single barge. It feels like they could be quite definitive here. What's your take? Yeah, I'd say I generally agree. It seems bizarrely technocratic, even coming from um, Starmer and his, his front bench. You know, you can't, like you say, you can't really dispute the sort of ins and outs of Labour's rationale. Like it will take time to get people off the barge and into new accommodation, but in terms of media communication, um, it is it's incredibly weak. Um, to me, your policy should try and embody the ideal, the sort of, and this might be quite a naive or fashion view of politics, but it should inspire hope. You know, what is this radical new Britain that we're going to see, or even not just radical, but just some moderate, meaningful change. Um, and I think ultimately my reflection on this in terms of why I'm quite worried about what Labour has said is that the one guardrail that they have currently is that this is a Tory failure and the asylum system won't be easy to sort out. And so Labour, when it gets into office, is going to be pummeled by the right wing press over all of this. And it will see its poll ratings starting to decline over the issue. And, you know, in order to come up with a better, rational, more humane system, Labour's got to stick to its guns or have some guns at all to stick to. It's got to have a firm ideological base. And I think this shows um, once again, sadly, you know, I have to say, um, I'm less, um, you know, I attack Labour less than, than you at the minute, Aaron. But um, I have to say it's disappointing once again. Next story. The data of millions of voters may have been hacked. And that's according to a recent revelation from the Electoral Commission. They say their systems were subject to a cyber attack by, quote, hostile actors, or sounds very John Grisham, which was only discovered last year. That left voters' data going back to 2014 accessible to the hackers, including names and addresses. Now, the hack is thought to have taken place from August 2021. So should we be worried? The Commission's CEO, Sean McNally, said this. The UK's democratic process is significantly dispersed and key aspects of it remain based on paper documentation and counting. This means it would be very hard to use a cyber attack to influence the process. Nevertheless, the successful attack on the Electoral Commission highlights that organisations involved in elections remain a target and need to remain vigilant to the risks to processes around our elections. 
The Electoral Commission says it can't know conclusively what data the hackers accessed, but that most of what they store is in the public domain anyway. As to why we're only hearing about this story now, they say it's because they had to notify various security bodies and beef up their own security before making the hack public. Sam, this was really interesting for me because it's something we've debated so much in, in the UK in recent years. You know, we take so long to find out the results for our national elections. Is this hack an argument for a paper-based system? I think when I saw this story, I thought, oh God, we're, we're going to be doing um, the ballot system like Trump's America. Um, and nobody wants that. You know, I was a bit of a, an idealist when I first got interested in politics, um, you know, being someone um, who comes from an area that's quite disconnected politically, you know, the internet uh, enabled me to be able to, you know, uh, get involved in politics uh, for the very first time and talk about it online. And uh, initially starting to see sort of that idealism wear off and the old fashioned forms of, you know, filing your ballot, storage, security. Mm. Um, Maybe served us have served us quite well, and we will continue to serve us quite well. So it's the, I think it's the balance really between accessibility, um, democratic participation, and security is is crucial in this sort of story. Next story: July saw a raging fires across southern Europe, with places like Greece and Spain seeing tourists and residents fleeing the flames. July also saw out of control Canadian forest fires turn New York into something like a scene from Blade Runner rendering the city's air quality at the worst in the world. There were also other forms of catastrophic weather events in Europe, like floods and enormous hailstones. We all knew the weather was out of the ordinary, and now it's been confirmed. The Times has this headline. July was the hottest month ever recorded on Earth, smashing all previous heat records. Now, suffice to say, this is very bad news, with scientists warning that previous records were broken by a staggering margin. This graph shows the changes in average global air temperature between July 1940 and July 2023. Temperatures start climbing in the early 1980s, rising from 16 degrees Celsius in 1980 to 16.6 degrees in 2020. That's a 0.6 degree change across four decades. Significant, but gradual. Uh, this year, however, the temperature has, le has leaped by almost 0.2 degrees in a single year taking us to 16.95 degrees, by far the highest figure ever recorded. The data also shows that this July was 1.5 degrees Celsius higher than pre-industrial temperatures. Now, 1.5 degrees, that might sound familiar. Well, it's a significant figure because it's what over 200 nations agreed to hold global warming to when they signed the Paris Agreement in 2015. But it's important to say a single hot July doesn't show we've breached that crucial figure. The agreement only fails if average global temperatures stay this high for a continuous period of 20 years. So what that means is corporations and governments hoping for the odd chilly summer over the next two decades to show that climate change isn't really happening. The data was provided by the Copernicus Atmosphere Monitoring Service. France 24 asked its director what this new record says about the future. Does the data give you any trajectory that continues to, to allow us to say what we could be experiencing in just a few years' time? Yes, as, as you rightly said, uh, it's, it's a big concern, but it's not a surprise. The, the driver for, for these hot temperatures and these records being broken year after year is the early emissions of uh, 
uh, CO2 and methane uh, from uh, from fossil fuel, and these uh, they continue to to increase year after year. Uh, it's 37.5 billion tons of CO2 that the world is emitting, and uh, as long as uh, this figure will not drop to zero, uh, unfortunately, uh, this uh, this tendency that we are seeing uh, will, uh, will 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 continue. Even in Europe, for instance, uh, between 2021 and 22. Uh, the, uh, there, there has been a little decrease by 0.8%, but it has been still 2.8 billion tons of CO2 emitted by EU27. A pretty unequivocal opinion there. It's only going to get worse unless we dramatically cut CO2 emissions, but we knew that already. Some of last month's heat can be blamed on the cyclical El Nino weather system, but not a lot. Michael Mann, a presidential distinguished professor of environmental science at the University of Pennsylvania, told the Times that El Nino accounts for one-sixth of the climate record, with about five-sixths due to human-caused climate change. It's not just average air temperatures that are changing either. The seas and oceans are heating up too. This graph shows daily average sea temperatures from 1979 to this year. Very similar to what you saw with the previous chart. Each blue line is a single year, with the yellow lines representing 2020 to 2022. However, the orange line is 2023, and it's about 0.3 degrees Celsius higher than it's been since records began. Rises in sea temperatures are being blamed on the oceans absorbing ever greater quantities of heat from the warming atmosphere. Our oceans are huge absorbers of CO2, helping to slow climate change. But as their temperatures rise, their capacity to absorb CO2 diminishes. It's a very terrifying feedback, one of many. It was reported last week that average sea surface temperatures hit a new high of 20.96 degrees Celsius on the 30th of July. That record has already been broken, hitting 20.97 20 degrees on August the 3rd. Sam, We've just bombarded our viewers and listeners there with a bunch of data, um, but it really is terrifying, isn't it? Because what you see across all the data is a quite slow but incremental rise, uh, really from 1940, from the mid-20th century all the way through to the early 1980s. And not only are things accelerating, which lots of people predicted, but it feels that at the start of the 2020s, we're now at the, at the beginning of, of something really dramatic, really terrifying. Uh, what's your read on this? My day job is at the climate investigations outlet DSMOG. So we track all this quite closely and particularly the misinformation around this. And I think it, uh, it's one of the real sad features of modern British politics and indeed Western politics in general, that with the temperature rising, so too has um, climate science denial increased you know, it's a fairly mainstream um, opinion within conservative politics currently um, that global warming either isn't happening or um, isn't caused by humans. Um, so, you know, it's it's still relatively fringe, but it's certainly acceptable and it's certainly um, a permanent and growing feature of right-wing politics We've seen in recent months um, various members of the Conservative Party, Lord uh, David Frost being the main one, former chief Brexit negotiator, has joined the Global Warming Policy Foundation, which is the UK's principal climate science denial group. We've seen Tory MPs, we've seen um, columnists at right-wing newspapers, and 
Um, yeah, I, my main reflection is that it seems as though the sort of climate consensus has entirely broken down. And I think a large part of that has been the sort of evaporation of green conservatism, the sort of, you know, Boris Johnson when he was London mayor or Zach Goldsmith, um, that kind of attitude towards the climate. And I think it's only going to get worse, sadly, as, um, as global temperatures ramp up. Sam, that is fascinating because I think most people view, you know, how do we how do we address the climate crisis? We have to radicalise people. What you're saying is actually something a little bit different, is that people being radicalised in the direction is really problematic and the collapse really of a centre-right base of support for uh, mitigating climate change, addressing these problems. We've seen that in the US for decades. It's now really kicking in over here. Are there differences, though, between the sort of climate denialist right in the US and the UK? And so much as here, outright denial seems a little bit less acceptable. And what you get instead is, oh, well, maybe it is a thing. You know, I said it didn't exist 10 years ago. Maybe it does exist. But anyway, we're only 1% of the global CO2 emissions. We're not China. Blame them. Blame Africa because they're going to see a doubling of population between 20, uh, 20 and 2050. Is that fair? Is there, are there quite sort of important distinctions between sort of the, the hard climate denialism of the US and the softer climate denialism of the UK? Yeah, I'd, I'd say so in general terms. But I think that, as in all things with the culture war, we're following closely behind America I mean, you know, there's plenty of uh, networks between America and the UK. You know, we're going to talk about think tanks in a second. And, um, you know, there are plenty of links between the groups spreading climate denial and denialism in the US and in the UK. So I think it will seep into the UK um, increasingly um, as time goes on. And there's a war going on in the tabloids where net zero is concerned that has only been amped up by the Uxbridge and South Ryslip result. Um, and it is, it is honestly on steroids at the minute. Um, so I can't see it being too long before we get the outright denialism in the mainstream in this country. Next story. In 2007, Tony Blair stepped down as prime minister. But despite leaving the political spotlight, or at least having it dimmed, he's remained a conspicuous figure in British politics in the 16 years since. In fact, if anything, he's gained influence in recent years. The primary vehicle for that is his think tank, the Tony Blair Institute for Global Change. Tom McTague has written a highly informative article about the man and the institution he chairs. Writing from Unheard, he starts by detailing the unique nature and scale of the Tony Blair Institute. The Institute was born in 2017 and now employs more than 800 people worldwide, some with salaries as high as $504,000, though Blair does not take one. He has offices in London, New York, San Francisco, Abu Dhabi, Singapore and Accra, and enough money to stage the slickest political conference in Britain. He has a media team to manage his media grid, a policy team to shape national debate, and a delivery team to project manage his priorities around the world. McTay goes on to illustrate the caliber of people working at the top of the TBI, something which again makes it pretty unique in the British think tank context. Blair has a chief executive who used to work in number 10, Catherine Rimmer, a global managing director who once worked for Justin Trudeau, Michael McNair, and an executive vice president who sits on the board of Oracle, one of the world's biggest tech companies, Awo Ablo. His policy unit, meanwhile, is the only think tank in Britain with American levels of funding and a direct line into both the government and opposition, not to mention the commissioners in Brussels and tech titans 
in San Francisco. It is this arm of the TBI which has produced policy papers on everything from Brexit to AI to COVID. Its influence is such that cabinet ministers and even prime ministers, including Boris Johnson and Liz Truss, are regularly in touch. Starmer's agenda as Labour leader now so closely resembles the policy prescriptions put forward by the TBI, whether on the need for a closer relationship with Europe or a new planning regime, that there is talk throughout Westminster of a Blairite Reconquista. He has openly offered his institute to help Starmer if he becomes Prime Minister. The TBI has become, in the words of one figure who knows the institute well, a McKinsey for world leaders a global consultancy business which advises governments on how to govern, while also acting as a middleman between the world's political and business elites. Astride it all, of course, is Blair himself, the man who decides what the organisation should focus on, who it should help, and where it should expand. Like a senior partner in a law firm, Blair brings in the clients using his connections with the rich and powerful. Here's where things are really interesting from a UK perspective, because in 2017, as left populism experienced something of a high watermark in the UK, with Labour enjoying the largest vote swing since 1945, Blair set up a new project about, quote, renewing the centre. This started, as McTague writes, by recruiting young Anglo-Americans to come up with ideas to save the liberal order as they saw it. From the beginning, though, there were tensions in the team. Some believed that given Blair's background as Labour leader, renewing the centre meant, in effect, renewing the centre-left, finding new policies that would rebuild the coalition of progressives he'd once so successfully amassed. Others, though, saw it differently. For them, renewing the centre meant renewing both the centre-left and the centre-right, and even forming an alliance when necessary to defeat their existential enemy, the populists, who must never be appeased. I was told Blair was firmly in the latter camp. Now, it does feel like the Blair Institute is on a whole other level compared to the right-wing think tanks who have traditionally made the weather on policy in this country. We've talked about it so frequently on the show, rightly so, by the way. Sam, you've said a great deal about it too. But this is key. This is a really big shift. And I guess if you're, on the, if you're a centrist, you think it's a great shift. It's a good thing, but it's a definite shift. Policy Exchange has, uh, I think, a turnover of around £4 million. They're the sort of the biggest beast um, in think tank world. They have a staff, I think, around 24, 25. The Tony Blair Institute has 800 people and a turnover in the tens of millions. This is a really big deal, isn't it? Yeah, for sure. I mean, I think one thing that you've got to factor in as well is that there's at least half a dozen similar think tanks to Policy Exchange, you know, as I've written in and around um, tweets. So that means that, that there does have a greater sort of body of uh, dark money think tanks um, that can weigh in on policy issues, but also means that perhaps the influence of one is um, mitigated by the number of right-wing think tanks out there. I mean, it strikes me that the sort of scope of the Tony Blair Institute um, is similar in some ways with what you have on the right with the Atlas Network, which is essentially a group through which various libertarian, uh, generally dark money funded uh, think tanks are coordinated um, on a global scale. Um, and yeah, uh, the Tony Blair Institute, that sort of size that you're talking about, the, the hundreds of, of staff is, uh, that's, that's mega, that's, you know, that's worldwide impact. 
Most concerning of all regarding the TBI, the Tony Blair Institute, is the potential for policy capture and how this interfaces with elite capture by the ultra-rich. Previous funders for the TBI include the US State Department and the Saudi government. However, a more recent benefactor is Larry Ellison, co-founder of software company Oracle who is estimated to have a personal fortune of $140 billion. He's fourth or fifth wealthiest person in the world, basically. The numbers that Allison has given the TBI over the last five years to, quote, support effective governance work in Africa are staggering. It started with $5 million in 2018, then $30 million in 2019, then $93 million in 2020, and in 2021, Ellison gave the Tony Blair Institute $83 million. $83 million. But what's wrong with that, you might say, Aaron? What's wrong with that? Why are you being so mean? You're picking on Blair. There's no commercial interest here for Ellison after all. But there is. Because in June last year, Ellison purchased the electronic health record company Cerner for almost $30 billion. About that purchase, McTague writes this. Almost immediately after the purchase, Ellison announced that it would help him realize his aim of building a single national database for health records. The plan was endorsed by Blair. His hope is that, using Oracle technology, every American will be able to store their medical data online. It is a visionary move, which, if it pays off, would make Oracle the Amazon of health records. To some, the partnership with the TBI makes good philanthropic and commercial sense. If Oracle can show that digital health records work in Africa, why not elsewhere? And by partnering with the TBI, Oracle gains access to parts of the world it might not have been able to reach before. So there's a very strong case that Ellison wants to buy and shape policy in order to make money. I'm sure he thinks what he's doing serves a wider social good as well. Maybe it does. Maybe it does. But people don't just spend $30 billion every day of the week. They certainly don't do it as a piece of charity. Inevitably, many will have problems with all of this, as McTague goes on to write. The problem is that such a scheme to create a single national health record database is not only incredibly complex and hard to deliver, but extremely contentious. In fact, the main objection is not technocratic, but political, even moral. Do we want every health record to be stored on a cloud run by one corporation? Oracle is already facing a lawsuit in the US over claims it has unlawfully collected information on five, I think that's probably a million people, not five, a billion people. That'd be pretty impressive if they had. I think there's a real danger with the Tony Blair Institute, particularly as centrist governments are more likely to take his proposals seriously and simply view them as common sense and pragmatic. After 15 years of big tech running riot through the offline economy, our civil liberties, and many people's mental health, Blair is one of the few remaining technological utopians. He has no real critique of technology, just that it will solve all our problems. Poverty, inequality, the housing crisis, healthcare, more technology, more, more, more. And he has no real critique of how business can leverage the monopolizing tendencies of big tech, which we've seen for more than a decade, to achieve a massive profits while leaving the average Joe worse off. With the prospect of a Labour government here in the UK, those are things I think progressives should be absolutely vigilant about. Sam, am I being unreasonable? You know, it's a funny one because uh, this, this, this article was published, right? I think it's a very interesting, good article. And then people sort of were quote tweeting it saying, oh, heaven forbid, digitized health records and, you know, better efficiencies. And I'm, I'm somewhat sympathetic to that argument. But it is clearly a danger to have one company involved in that. It's not competitive. If you're, if you're a capitalist, you're meant to believe in markets and competition. 
that ain't it. Um, and I think with the NHS in particular, it's tailor-made for a monopoly actor to come in and, and do precisely that. Am I being unreasonable? No, I don't think so. And I, I'd say if you were. Um, I don't think it's just a problem with Oracle either. Um, there's been a lot of uh, rancor about um, Palantir, the US-based um, data processing firm that's owned by Peter Thiel, one of Trump's um, early donors, um, and how they've tried to um, stick their finger in this particular healthcare pie in the UK as well. Um, and I, I've, got to, I've got to admit, this is a thing that's really puzzled me about Blair for quite a while, his tech utopianism, as, as you say, because he, he, he says that successful progressive parties own the future, and this is his big argument for why Labour should embrace technology and technology policy in general. And, you know, I completely agree that, you know, technology policy is important and it should be married up with economic policy to make sure that people aren't left behind by this new digital um, revolution. But the fact is, I don't think Keir Starmer is going to win many votes in red wall seats through his AI policy. And for all of, you know, Blair's sort of fist waving about how Labour needs to become a viable electoral product now. Um, I think this is just a, an almighty distraction. And I think it I think it probably speaks to the fact that um, he hangs out with a load of tech bros now and he, he's trying to sign he's trying to sign more like them. Yeah. The technology one is really interesting. Because like you say, he wants the centre-left to own the future, but then he's like, well, actually, no, you know, whatever Silicon Valley wants is the future, and we just have to defer to that. Fascinating anecdote, by the way, because Blair loved to sort of pose himself as this technological, you know, um, advocate, you know, something at the cutting edge of the zeitgeist, which in some ways he was. He never had a mobile phone until he left office, like in, in what, 2007? He never had a mobile phone. He never sent a text message. Again, it makes sense. He had a PA, but still... For somebody talking about, you know, new technologies, the new economy, knowledge economy, he didn't have a, a cell phone. Crazy. Tweeting on the hashtag Navarra Live, Tommy P says, fight back, question mark, support independent media. Uh, yes, which is why you should go to navarramedia.com forward slash support to build people-powered media. You know, let me just recount some statistics here. We reached, at one point last week on YouTube, 600,000 views on one day. And I said to Fox, who's here, I said, wow, that's great. That's a record. He said, yeah, it's loads of people piling in the comments about whether or not people uh, protesting for just a poll should be run over by cars. So, you know, the smile from my face dropped somewhat, uh, but it's still very good news. On Instagram, I think in the last month, we've reached 12 million people, 12 million people. So support our work, reach serious numbers of people with serious journalism and a different take uh, on what you see elsewhere, uh, certainly what you see from legacy outlets. I really think it's money well spent. Navarramedia.com forward slash support. Next story. At some point this year, there will be a by-election in the parliamentary constituency of Mid-Bedfordshire. That's the seat of Nadine Dorries, talk TV presenter and part-time MP who barely bothers to speak in parliament anymore. I say the by-election will happen at some point because Ms. Dorries hasn't actually resigned yet, and only then, when she has done, will the process be triggered. But regardless, campaigning has already begun, with the major parties selecting their candidates. 
Labour's hopeful is Alistair Strathern. He studied PPE at Oxford and now works at the Bank of England. Here's a video of him canvassing in the constituency he soon hopes to represent. Hi guys, out in Whipsom this evening and it's really clear speaking to people they feel very let down locally by the lack of an MP to really fight for the lack of infrastructure and the investment that they were promised when they moved into the area and nationally by a government that crashed the economy and they sent their mortgage rates sky high with one family I spoke to now having to find an extra £400 a month just to make sure that they could continue making their payments. It's been great to be able to talk to people about some of the things I'd be looking to do differently if I was their MP and also my Meet the Candidate event coming up here in September when I'll be able to talk in more detail about my plans for the area and how I'd make a real difference to the local Labour MP focused on their priorities. I want to say a big thank you to everyone who took the time to speak to me today and I hope to catch you soon if I didn't see you tonight. Now, if you're going to grow an identical Labour candidate in a lab, you know, just imagine Keir Starmer and Peter Mandelson with little uh, pipettes and uh, Bunsen burners, it would be Mr. Stratham. Oxford educated, Bank of England, a jawline like Banana Man. What's not to like? Well, the sun seemed to have found their sticking point because it turns out that he also gives a toss about the climate crisis and civil liberties, heaven forbid. Marginal issues, after all, so much that he dressed as a zombie at a protest held by Greenpeace outside the Home Office last November. The Sun reports this. A Labour by-election candidate is today unmasked as a Greenpeace sellout. Alastair Strathern, 33, posed as a zombie for an eco-stunt. Our revelation about the mid-Bedfordshire hopeful comes days after Greenpeace activists climbed on PM Rishi Sunak's home. Sir Keir Starmer was earlier tonight urged to ditch Mr Strathern. Cabinet Minister Grant Shapp said, at one minute they are climbing the PM's house, next they've got a Labour rosette on, if only. The Energy Security Secretary added, Sir Keir Starmer must show he practices what he preaches for once and block the eco-mob from his candidate's list. The article goes on to say this, we can reveal that Mr. Strathern's partner, Megan Corton Scott, works as a political officer for Greenpeace. The couple dressed as zombies outside the Home Office for one of the group's stunts last November. Mr. Strathern was also pictured outside Parliament protesting against laws clamping down on Joster Poyle and Extinction Rebellion disruption. Good. A good Labour candidate for once. Uh, now, I found this story really striking for a few reasons. Firstly, because The Sun and a host of other right-wing papers too think that wearing makeup and attending a peaceful protest should be sufficient to disqualify someone from standing for office. Is that, is that the threshold now? Is that really the threshold? You protested. Sorry, you can't be in Parliament. It certainly makes you think about how it's apparently the left that goes around cancelling people. This seems like quite a low bar. You put on some mascara and lipstick and you uh, mucked around for a few minutes. Sorry, you can't do that. You have to stay in your present job. Uh, there's also a deep irony here, one no doubt lost on the Tories and journalists at The Sun and Telegraph. Man peacefully protests about the right to protest dressed as a zombie. Man is subsequently prohibited from standing for office for dressing as a zombie, kind of proving his point there, guys. How do people engage in politics if they want to change things, if they can't protest, and they can't stand for the only opposition party that's going to really win seats? The default authoritarianism this story highlights is anything but funny. Sam, they have a majority of over 24,000 in mid-Bedfordshire, so they shouldn't be worried. But to me, this story stinks of desperation from the Tories. The whole thing is just 
ludicrous from one end to the next. Like you say, like how the Labour like produce these like briefcase candidates. Um, but also, you know, what you know levels of the barrel uh, the right wing press and the Tories willing to scrape. Um, for me, like this, the whole kind of targeting of just stop oil, um, extinction rebellion, and Greenpeace now. Um, so it obviously ties into the demonization generally of the net zero agenda. Um, and for me, it's something that the, they've been attempting to do for a while, which is to find a new Brexit, which is to find something that in their mind shows like day overreach, it shows state overreach. It shows, um, you know, bureaucracy gone mad. And it potentially, you know, in their minds at least, um, in an overblown fashion, they're making it seem as though working class people are going to have to pay for net zero um, and for the actions of Just Stop Oil, etc. Um, because that was the last political strategy that actually worked for the Conservatives. And since 2020, we've seen the gradual diminishing of um, their political base um, and yeah, this is this is a, this is essentially the the shot that they are shooting at this stage to try and reinvigorate um, the culture war. So let's see some of those reactions because uh, they are rather amusing on Twitter, or rather they were outlandish, shall we say? Here's Grant Shapps responding to the story online. Labour have gone too far this time, plotting to put eco fanatics in Parliament. At Keir Starmer, I'm challenging you today, ban members of the eco-mob from Labour's candidates. How do you even do that? What, do you, what even is that as a, as a demand? The eco-mob. Anyone who cares about climate change cannot be a candidate for the Labour Party. That's what I mean. Doesn't make any sense. I'm challenging a duel, Mr. Starmer. I'm challenging you today to ban members of the eco-mob from Labour's candidate list. Will you stand up for Britain or like a zombie? Will you mindlessly follow the mob's every whim? Meanwhile, here's the official Conservative Party's tweet. The eco-mob arising and they're wearing Labour rosettes. You've got the nice little emojis there, the zombie and the, and the dying flower. I have to be honest, guys, if you look at opinion polls right now, it's not the red rose of Labour which is wilting. It's the tree in your logo. It's like somebody's uh, poured battery acid around its roots. You're on 20%, guys. And here's Darren Grimes. Britain will end up as an eco-zombie if we continue down the path we're, in, uh, we're on in appeasing these anti-human activists. Anti-human. Lots of angles here. What's interesting for me is message discipline. Message discipline. Is there a WhatsApp group, a nefarious WhatsApp group, which makes sure that certain people touch certain... Cornerstone issues say certain words. Just a thought, perhaps. But most concerning of all, here's the Twitter account for Basingstoke Conservatives. A vote for Keir Star, a vote for Labour. A vote for Labour is a vote for the eco-terrorists. That is a really extraordinary thing to say. A vote for Labour is a vote for eco-terrorists. For some people, many people in the Conservative Party, how they responded to Corbyn is, is their default. I know people think, oh, Corbyn bad or whatever, or, you know, change the leader, they'll stop doing it. They did the same to Ed Miliband, Okay. The idea that a guy who studied at Oxford did PPE, he works the Bank of England, he's been a Labour councillor for nine years, he has a jawline like Banana Man, they're going to call even people like this a terrorist, okay? There is no conceivable candidate where people like the Basingstoke Conservative Party will talk like healthy, sane individuals. It, it can't happen. 
Sam, this is actually quite extremist rhetoric, isn't it? You know, when you're talking about a prospective parliamentary candidate being an eco-terrorist for, for peaceful protests, dressing up as a zombie, he, you know, he didn't, he didn't do anything remotely illegal. I'd say it's new territory. It's, it's new territory in so much as the aggressiveness of these talking points have really percolated so far down in the Tory base, haven't they? Yeah, definitely. Um, and... I'm sad to say that it's not just in the Navarra comments section where people are debating whether to run over eco-protesters. This is like a big right-wing talking point now. Like it's, it's you know, they're showing footage of people standing up to these supposed eco-terrorists and it's just the fanning the flames. They know exactly what they're doing. And like for me, what just angers me so much is those people who sort of sit smugly in the middle and say, well, both sides of the debate are angry, aren't they? Both sides of the debate are radical. And it's like, I'm sorry, on the one hand, you've got people calling for um, protesters to be jailed, run over, calling them terrorists. And then when anybody bites back from the left or even the centre supposedly were just as bad. And it's just, I'm sorry, there's just a, such a huge imbalance in terms of both the rhetorics used and the platforms through which people are making their cases. These people are making their cases through the literal British government, through the tabloids, through some of the most read publications in the country, through massive social media accounts. And then when somebody says austerity was bad and it killed 300,000 people, um, apparently that's equivalent. And we've just got to get out of this like narrative mess that um, you know, supposed sensible commentators have us in. It's a real uh, shambles uh, on this particular issue because you do get a lot of um you do get a lot of virtue signaling from Tories. I know people don't like me saying that word. It's often, you know, said to denigrate the left, but there is you know, we're, we're virtuous, wonderful people. Um virtuous, wonderful people don't have local constituency parties referring to their opponents as terrorists. They don't. If you're virtuous, that tweet would no longer be up. The person who published it would get a really big slap on the wrist. It ain't happening because that's the norm for the right in this country. Before we go, one more super chat. Philip Scott with £10. Independent media, it's where it's at. Thank you so much. I agree. I agree so much. I helped start Navarra Media. Just cancelled my TV licence fee. I would never endorse such a thing. Um, I like BBC Radio 4. I'm not such a fan of the rest of the content they put out. Um... I would like to still just pay for the radio. You used to have that option. You don't anymore. If you agree with uh, Mr. Scott, go to navarrame.com forward slash support to help us build a people-powered media and a very different kind of media to what you see elsewhere. Sam, thanks for joining me this evening. Some great takes. Pleasure. And it's a lovely town, Aaron. Stella. A lovely town. You know, this is, it's not foundation. This is the real McCoy. Uh, and thanks, everyone, for watching this evening. Uh, come back tomorrow for another live stream from 6pm. For now, you've been watching Navarra Media. Good night. This broadcast is brought to you by Navarra Media. Go to navaramedia.com slash support.